Carlina Rinaldi said, Peace is a way of thinking, learning, and listening to others, a way of looking at differences as an element of connection, not separation. Join me, Sandy Lanes, as I speak with the Atalrista from Sabbath at Stony Point, who inspires us with a wonderful story of peace, a collaboration among children and educators whose ideas collide, challenge, and cross-pollinate as she helps us all become Awakened to Reggio. Anna Golden has been teaching at Sabbath at Stony Point in Richmond, Virginia, since 1996, first as a teacher in the preschool and eventually becoming the Atelrista. She leads professional development sessions around the country and has taught education and art education classes at the University of Mary Baldwin and Virginia Commonwealth University. She has published books and co-authored books for educators and parents, including Undertaking Supporting and Learning from Early Childhood Researchers, Nature Education with Young Children, and Nature Preschools and Forest Kindergartens. She works to connect with educators from around the world who are interested in progressive education and the Reggio approach through teaching and workshops, coaching, her scholarly writing, and her Atelrista blog, which you definitely should check out. The blog is so interesting because it touches on so many facets of this approach. And I know a little bit about you. You're not far away from me. I'm in Washington, D.C. You're in Richmond, Virginia, but I really just want to know more. So maybe you could start by telling us about your journey with the Reggio approach and just slide that into talking about the journey of Sabbath. I have an art degree. I went to school for photography and printmaking, and I was working in commercial art, and I just hated it. And so (laughs) in, in the back of my mind, I kept hearing the little voice saying, go work with children. My mom was a teacher and I'd done a lot of like recreation programs and things like that, but I never wanted to be a teacher until I actually started working somewhere else. And then I realized that's what I wanted to do. But what really changed my path was my sister-in-law was working at a daycare center and went to see Malaguzzi at the MELC in DC. And she came back and she was pretty jazzed about it. But uh, after a a few days, she gave me the hundred languages of children, the first book. And she said, I think you would really like this. It's a, it's a, it's a lot, but see what you think. So I read it and I just could not believe it. And it was just saying to me, everything that I like to do that I'm good at doing that I'm curious about and translating that into working with children. And I just knew I had to find a school where I could teach like that. It was just completely transformed everything for me. I started asking around and I found out there was this one school, my friend Carrie said, there's this school that I know about that the director just went to Reggio Emilia and and came back and they're just going to start to explore that. And I was like, I have to get a job there. And that was Sabbath. They hired me for a classroom position saying, as soon as we can afford it, we'll put you in a, in the art studio, you know? And so I was in the classroom for 14 years and every year they would say, maybe, maybe soon we could, <laughs> but it didn't matter. It was so great. And then Sabbath, we, we were a preschool. Some parents really wanted the school to go further. So we added a kindergarten one year. And then from there, 
we were in the basement of a church. We had this kindergarten classroom in the parsonage. And it was just like, we have to get a new location. This is just getting really ridiculous. And so there was this independent school, uh, Stony Point, that wanted to merge with Sabbath. And so Sabbath moved out of the basement of the church to this amazing property. I don't know if any any of your listeners have been here, but it's like this old tobacco baron's mansion and it's on 28 acres. It's right next to a big park. So we just have this like gorgeous property that we can we can use for whatever we want. When we merged though, we went from preschool and kindergarten to preschool through eighth grade. Um, so that was a big leap. And right at that time I became the atelierista. So I had to figure out like yeah. That job and working with uh, older children, of course, as a teaching artist, you always work with older children because you do summer camps. And, you know, so I'd worked with middle schoolers and bigger kids a lot, but just kind of had to figure out how how to work with teachers who were just learning the approach and, you know, hadn't hadn't done all the like extensive work that we had been doing at the preschool for all those years and just creating this new community. Could you share a little bit about that entry point when when Sabbath started to really become involved with the Reggio approach. What did it look like then? And what has been the evolution throughout the years? When I first got to Sabbath, uh, Marty Gravitt was the teacher who'd, who'd gone to Reggio Amelia in like 1994 or five. Th- they were trying to figure it out and they were trying to figure out what projects looked like. And um, But it was a school that had been really very play-based. The English infant school was their inspiration. So there was, what I saw was that they were not asking children to really stick with things. Like if children decided that they wanted to get up and go out and play, then they just did. And so that was a really big transition at first was just like, how can we create this engagement that you need when you want to do do a longer term investigation with children? And so that was a little uh, big bit of a learning curve just to figure that out. And once we once we all sort of got our heads around that, that it wasn't mean to ask children to sit down and keep thinking about something or keep, you know, drawing something or work on something or to let them go, but then bring them back you know, at another time. Well, then we really got cooking in the preschool and we were just, all the teachers were just so on fire with the potential of teaching like this. And we were seeing just amazing things from the children. And then again, when we merged with this other school, it was like, okay, now we have to figure the same thing out with a lot more adults and a lot more children of older ages. And so that again was sort of creating this culture of how to help children be engaged. Of course, in the preschool, you're always meshing the academic stuff in with the project work that you're doing. But with older children, it's even more important. Um, So how can we get reading and writing literacy skills in with some of this project work or math or, you know, measuring and all of those kind of things. So that again was another like big challenge, but it was a really interesting challenge. And the teachers were all just you know, so jazzed to try to figure it all out. So that sort of brought the community together. Initially, back in in the 90s and 99, I think a few of us went to Reggio together. So that was one of those, you know, where we really became a team, but we also saw these amazing things and we could talk about it. And after we merged, we found out that there was a a school that was Reggio influenced in St. Louis. So we went there and we saw 
you know, the college school in St. Michael's, I think. And there was a couple of preschools that we also visited in St. Louis. But going to those things together was just so amazing. Like we would all um, go to the exhibit wherever it was. We went once in North Carolina and once in Ohio. And But but then we could have those conversations, you know, even in the car driving back where we, we could just say, ah, I saw this thing or I didn't understand this little bit. And that kind of thing just really let us sort of build our understandings together, which yeah. was amazing. A lot of people go and see or or start learning and then feel a little bit overwhelmed or not sure where to bring it to their own school context. If you were to describe your school's context around the Reggio approach, what would you say? What, what's important there for us to know about? I think the collaboration between children is the most important thing all the way through the school. So you see a lot of children having discussions, teachers and children in circle having discussions and and like constructive arguments about different things. I think everyone can agree, like we want human beings who can talk to each other, who have the capacity to listen to each other and who can be critical, like give give helpful criticism to someone and accept helpful criticism from someone. And so we're all working on those skills together. And even the teachers and faculty meetings are working on those skills. You know, I think that's the main thing that we look at. And so we try to have a lot of just interactions, not only within the class, but also like if a preschool class is looking at bodies and then in science, they're building the digestive system out of clay, like we would have the middle schoolers show that to the preschoolers. Mm. So there's a lot of like wow. cross-pollination and discussion that's going on. I think that's our our most important sort of like, that's the spine of the, of the school. <laughs> I don't know what a good metaphor is, but I think that's all. So well, the one thing we really can all agree on. I, I'm thinking as you're talking about the arguments, the constructive arguments, the children being able to disagree, share their perspectives, as well as the teachers. I'm wondering if you could help us think a little bit about what the role of the teacher would be in order to encourage a culture of collaboration, of communication in that way. Sure. First, I have to tell a little story, though. I, I was fascinated. I heard the some Reggio educators talking about the word confronto, the Italian word confronto. And, and I'm like super blunt. And that's just like the way my family is, you know, and I was like, this is amazing that they, I didn't hear about it until I'd been reading about this work for, you know, 17 years or something. And I was like, this is amazing that they do this thing that I do naturally. And they think it's important. And so one summer I went to the of the conference out in Portland at the Opal School. And it there was Tiziana Filippini, Amelia Gambetti, and Bea Vecchi were up on the stage talking. And one of them said something that I guess was wrong or got a, some date wrong or something. And they started arguing on the stage. And then they started to explain Confronto and how in, it, in Italy, they have to be able to have these like arguments and this is the way they come to new understandings. And it was just the most wonderful thing I'd seen in a long time. And so I'm always trying to explain that to teachers here. Like, 
we can have these disagreements as long as our egos don't get bound up in it, you know, and we'll both be smarter at the end of them. But that's a tough thing to learn how to do. It really is. Yeah, it is. It's for human beings. For all human beings, it's hard to do. But um, back to the role of the teacher within that, if that's something that you want to be able to do, the teacher has to be able to be quiet and not be inserting themselves into every conversation all the time. There's those models of teacher talk where it's like the child talks, then the teacher talks, then a child talks, then the teacher talks. Like that's not going to work in this context because we want the children to start saying things, um, explaining their, their working theories, their strategies. We need them to explain them enough that someone else either can agree or disagree and then add on to what they're saying, right? So the teacher has to be able to listen and, and notice and document, but also be quiet. And that's a tough one. The teacher is somehow documenting. I'm not good at writing while I'm in interactions with, with people. But so I do a lot of like audio recording and then I transcribe later. Other teachers here are like walking around with notebooks and they just fill them. And I'm so in awe of that because I just can't do it. Everyone does have to find their own style. They really do. And then the teacher has to be willing to share that information with somebody else so they can be bouncing it off another person. Like what I saw the kids do today was this and I have this question or I think I... I think I kind of shut it down when I said this. What do you think? And and also not the teacher can't has to feel brave enough to try things that aren't going to work sometimes. And the school culture, the school itself has to say that's okay to the teachers. I think a lot of times in education now, like teachers are not allowed to try and fail. You know, they just have to follow the plan and not make any mistakes. And it's so tragic because we want children to grow up thinking, oh, I can try this thing. And if I don't do a good job, I'll just try it again the next day. But I think that's a huge part of the role of the teacher is that sort of experimental mindset. And it's true. Nothing is truly precious in that we might say something. It's really just all about reflecting on it afterwards. It's yeah. And trying something out. It happens so often that you shut down children's inquiry, even if you've been practicing for a million years, like both of us have. <laughs> well, I so like the just... word practice so much because I think you're right. I, we we still sometimes step into, you know, the wrong word or the, the jump in too quickly. Or and so I think we're I think the message to everyone is just jump right in and try. <laughs> Don't worry, you can always relaunch tomorrow or next week. I want to jump back into your role a little bit as the atelrista. I don't know. How do you define it to others who don't really know that word? I I usually tell people that I'm a special kind of art, like people really don't know. I'm a special kind of art teacher. And my role is to help children make their thinking visible to others, whether that be to other children or to uh, adults. And within that, I'm, I'm sharing media and materials with children so that they can communicate in, in more languages than just in, in speech or in writing. And also I'm helping teachers understand media materials because sometimes I can't be in the classroom, but you know, they can introduce clay or wire or whatever. 
I, I'm wondering about your collaboration with the teachers and maybe could you share an example of maybe a process, a project that has been happening, whether it was a long time ago or now, where your role was to be very much involved in, in the process. We do an umbrella project every year, which is a, a which we stole from Reggio, they call it the school-wide intention or the citywide intention, but we call it our umbrella project because it's like one big idea that goes over the whole school that everybody thinks about. This year, we're all thinking about peace. In, in one of the first grade classrooms, we were thinking about peace in all different ways and drawing and talking about children's rights. But one day during a break time or recess time, the first graders went outside and some middle schoolers had put a big branch in a, in a tree that was shaped like a V and were using it as a seesaw. And the first graders were like, ah, you're hurting the tree. You're hurting the tree that is still alive. If you take the, if it's, it's rubbing the bark off, if you keep doing that, the tree will die. And the middle schoolers pushed back and were like, oh, you know, we're not doing anything wrong, blah, blah, blah. So the te- the first grade teachers and I talked about that and realized that this could be what we do f- about peace. Like we can really think about peace in a, in a very active way because we're right in, involved in this big argument that's happening. And so we took it back to the children when we, we said, you know, we saw this happen. We saw that the middle schoolers were not really listening to you. And, you know, how do you think we could solve this problem? We want not only to save the tree, but we want the middle schoolers to be kind to you. And and the first grader said, well, we would like to make them a seesaw and then they won't have to use the tree and they'll be happy with us and they won't be, you know, grumpy or whatever. They were starting to, they were calling them stubborn. They won't be stubborn if we, if we're so kind to them. So we went through a long process of figuring out how to make a seesaw. We built models and we drew and we looked at seesaws and we looked at simple machines, you know, ramps and uh, levers and things like that. Sometimes I was in the classroom when those things were happening. Sometimes just the two classroom teachers were, were doing those things, but we would come back together and look at documentation of whatever parts of that had happened. And as Abbott, we're also super lucky that we have a caretaker named Pippin, who's also a carpenter. So once the children had finally come to pretty much a, a solid plan that they thought was big enough for the middle schoolers to use, but also the littler kids and that wouldn't, you know, break in the rain or, you know, get ruined or anything like that. We took that plan to Pippin and he helped us make a few little modifications and then we built the seesaw together. So he cut out with the power saw, the big pieces. And, but he, there were parts where the first graders did, did the carpentry themselves. And then they took that and put it in the, in the place where they were playing and they presented it to the middle schoolers and watched and took pictures of the middle schoolers using the seesaw and, you know, lots of pictures of smiling middle schoolers on this seesaw. There were a few still who were still being stubborn, but um, so that was a that was a big long project that just sort of wrapped up recently. I love that it is not linear. That you started from a place that uh, of of an event, but then there became the simultaneous research of the adults and the children from different perspectives and really thinking about the value 
and also then the path of of studying seesaws and right. and woodworking and all of those things it's just so complex it's it's hard to explain that in a sound bite you know but if 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 you have a teacher who's open minded and willing and even super curious like i wonder how this will turn out if we just sort of give it over to the children it just becomes such a magical process because, you know, here we had this big social emotional area that we were exploring at the same time we were doing math and physics. And like you said, woodworking and drawing and clay and, you know, all these other materials, but. And really probably sustained so much because of the social and emotional place that right. it began. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, giving a gift is something that is so gratifying that you will do all this work in order to get to the end where you you get to give the gift, I think. And the emotional aspect, I think, I'm, I'm just really into this now, but the yeah. emotional aspect of the younger children arguing with older children that, that anyone can learn from anyone, I think is just such a beautiful idea. That I even love the fact that the, that the middle schoolers some of them were grumpy about it and let, like, of course they were, right? Middle schoolers, we all know how middle <laughs> schoolers are, right? So it's not like we're ne not never living in a perfect world. So what can come out of that? It's a beautiful thing to me. And that is so much the true study of peace, of being with others. And I think sometimes people go to a really surface place when they're thinking about those big, big ideas, like just sort of asking the children what is peace and writing it down that's mm -hmm. not really getting you to a place where the children are living it which is what you did exactly right looking for that opportunity to go deeper because i you know we i was waiting for that moment when we could find some idea some naughty problem as they say that we could really dive into i, I think this probably connects very well to the the next idea that i'm thinking about because i had been reading your blog and i noticed that you had written about this idea of cognitive dissonance and it's such big words but i i really would love you to explain what you mean by that and how that is something that we as educators could really sort of connect to when we go into our classrooms? To me, cognitive dissonance is when you, you understand something in your own way, whatever that may be. Maybe it's the idea of dog, what a dog is. And you're, when you're a young child, you know the dog that you have and dogs are brown and have floppy ears and long tails. But then you encounter something that contradicts that. You see something that's white and fluffy and curly and has a short tail and someone says dog to you, that causes cognitive dissonance in your head. And you know, you can imagine the politics, the scene of politics in the United States in the last the several years is all cognitive dissonance. Like we're all just confronting things that go against what we believe is right. When you're in that state of cognitive dissonance, you can either shut down or you can explore further, right? And so I think in the in the Reggio approach and in education in general, like the more we talk to each other, the more we construct understanding in a social context, the more we confront cognitive dissonance, 
and get strategies to like move beyond it in these interactions when we're having these big discussions or when we're sitting around a round table and we're all drawing fish, you know, we confront our cognitive dissonance and then we we get that new knowledge that we add to our understandings and our understandings get deeper and broader. I really want to know, because I think about this a lot, you're out working with educators in both your school and other places. What is one of the biggest misconceptions that you're encountering that maybe you could help to, to redefine for, for some of the educators who are, are listening? I think the thing that I, that I confront the most, people say, how do you do this with older children? It doesn't seem to make sense to a lot of people that you could do this kind of approach with older kids. Cause I guess there's so much content that has to be covered and they just can't imagine how, how to do it. But I, in my own mind, I don't really see that much difference between teaching younger children and teaching older children. I mean, we're all curious. We all experience cognitive dissonance. We all experience the feeling of disequilibrium when when we get to a place where we're unsure, even with media and materials, like there's not a huge difference between showing a preschooler clay and showing a middle schooler clay. They still both have to mess about with it for a while until they can figure out how to use it and make something that they want to make, right? The thing that they make might be different in the end, but the process is the same. And I just it's so hard for me to explain because in my head, it seems so simple how you do this with older children, how you make time. It just seems so clear to me that like what we do at home, we, you know, when a child wants to learn how to cook something, we let them go in the kitchen and we help them figure it out. Right. That's just what this all is. It's just like giving people time and scaffolding to figure things out. And that's definitely what university is, right? So if it's not that different between universities or art school or, you know, PhD programs, then why is it so hard to understand with elementary aged kids? I love that you said that because the question I hear so often is how do you do this with infants and toddlers? So really it's the same response, which is that from birth all the way up, humans are constructing knowledge through human learners, yes. right? And if any of the listeners are working in schools that are thinking about expanding further into the older ages, I'm going to send them right to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can struggle to explain it. <laughs> I, I hate to come to an end, but I really have enjoyed so much this conversation, but I think we're all sort of struggling in the world right now, maybe for a while now. And people are looking for inspiration and something to help us just keep going and, and doing this work that we're passionate about. If you could make a wish for all the educators who are listening now, what would you wish for them? I would wish... I would wish for them just to have that one beautiful interaction with a child that that gives you that fills you with wonder for human beings and those little moments where a child says something amazing or shows you something that they found or 
they happen so often. And if you let them, they can keep you charged through the, the more difficult times. So I'm I'm going to wish for everyone to be able to have an amazing little interaction with someone. Wow. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today. And I know our listeners will get so much out of this. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. It was great talking with you and great seeing you again. If you would like to know more about my wonderful guests or the Reggio approach, please go to my website at sandylanesconsulting.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.